So glad that you are here. Um, good morning. Welcome. I am uh, Pastor Paul. I'm lead pastor here at Four Oaks Killarne. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Now, the greatest rock climber in the world, undisputed, cannot be argued, no holds barred, is a man named Alex Hanold. And he stars in this documentary called Free Solo, where he is going to attempt to free solo El Capitan in Yosemite. It's the most famous rock formation in the world almost, 3,000 feet of sheer rock face. Now, understand, many have soloed El Capitan, all right, meaning they've done it without climbing aids, but they do have like safety ropes and carabiners, and I don't know how any of this stuff works. I just know it's what you're supposed to do to be safe when you climb. So in other words, you're climbing, but if you slip, you lose your hold, you only fall, you only have two seconds of sheer terror, right? And, and you fall, and, but you get back up and you keep going on your way. But Alex was not only going to solo El Capitan, guess what? He was going to free solo it, meaning not only no climbing aids, but no safety measures. No carabiners, no ropes, nothing to break his fall, just him hand over hand, terrifyingly thousands of feet off the ground as we are sitting there watching this documentary. Now, he doesn't make it. No, I'm just kidding. He does make it, of course. Of course he makes it. Now, now here's what's fascinating. From a distance, because you know they've got all these cameras and drones and everything, from a distance, his progress looks imperceptible, right? He's just like a little gnat on this rock face. Um, and, it, and it seems sometimes that he is, he is almost stuck there or he's just, he, there's nothing happening. But when you zero in, you realize that he is incredibly focused, as you can imagine, and incredibly brain dead, as you can also imagine. And he's imperceptibly, but in fact, deliberately, slowly, certainly, slowly moving up that rock face, one rock at a time. Now, I liken this a little bit to how we need to think about the kingdom of God and the church of God. From a distance, sometimes, let's be honest, the progress of the church the global church, the progress of the kingdom can seem to be imperceptible. We look around and evil prevails seemingly, and it seems that the church or the gospel is, is halted or losing. But yet when we zero in on the rock, we come to realize slowly but certainly there is a definite purposeful advance, and it's been going on this way for thousands of years. One rock one person at a time. And when Jesus returns one day, the church will reign glorious. Now, we've seen how this story begins in our summer sermon series, which we're calling the story of Israel. Israel has been given its own task, the El Capitan of its spiritual life, which is to spread the knowledge of the glory of the Lord across the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea, as Habakkuk reminds us. But we've seen how God begins this reclamation project, this redemption project. He begins with it, begins it with what? One rock, one little rock, one man named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to send you up the face of this wall, and, and 
one is going to become two, and two is going to become 20, and then 70. And then we know that ultimately these 70 wind up in Egypt, where they grow into a mighty nation of two million. And God raises up Moses to lead them out of Israel to the promised land. I will not say it again, Siri. I'm going to hide my watch now. It just talked back to me. My, it, was, it was quoting Joshua for me. But anyway, so we've seen how God led his people out of Egypt into the promised land to become a nation. So already this one rock has become two million rocks. And last week we saw how God led them into the promised land in this amazing uh, amazingly um, spectacular defeats of the Canaanites and the walls of Jericho came tumbling down, and now Israel is going in to take possession. And this land, the promised land, is where they're going to live as a covenanted people. This is where they are going. They're going to use this land as a staging ground, right, to, to conquer more rocks for the glory of God, to, to build um, a great nation that will be a light to the world, that's where we left off last week. But today, we fast forward now 400 years. Israel has been in the land. And we can most certainly say, Israel, we have a problem. Because while they were occupying the land, they were anything but a covenanted people living before God for his glory. In fact, the the writer of Judges tells us, in those days, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, or her own eyes. You see, there was no singular leader after Joshua. God had entrusted the people to live before him as a people, but there was no singular leader like Moses or Joshua. So when the Israelites would get into trouble, when they would stray, when they would disobey, they would drift from their covenant. God would have to raise up these figures, historical figures called judges. And these judges would kind of ride in to save the day. They would deliver the Israelites, and they would sort of recede into the pages of history. And, you've, and you're probably familiar with the names of some of these judges, right? Gideon, Samson, Samuel, Barak, Deborah. But all of these were temporary. Because the writer of Judges tells us, in those days... Everyone did what was right in their own eyes because why? There was no king. Israel was in desperate need of a king, of a leader. Now, books on leadership are a plenty today, secular and Christian or otherwise. And you may have heard it said that everything stands and falls on leadership. And I think that in, in a lot of ways that, that's, that's true, whether it's families or marriages or companies or churches or governments. In a very real sense, everything does stand and fall. But the problem is not that there's not leadership today. Oh, there's always leadership, right? You, you put a people on a desert island and someone is going to lead, right? The, the problem is not that people aren't leading. The problem is what kind and what type of leadership is needed. Because let me just say, as Christians, we need to have a biblical model of leadership, a, a, a vision of what it means to be 
the people of God called and set apart. And here, I'm not just simply referring to what do we look for in other leaders. That's most certainly true. But I really want you to personalize this this morning because, guess what? Every one of you, in some context, is going to function as a leader, whether it's in the home or with your children or at work or in a Bible study or in a work group or on your uh, floor of your college dorm, um, your athletic, your, your, your team that you play for, your friendships in the neighborhood, you're, gonna, you're going to function in some way in a leadership capacity. And undoubtedly, you're, God is going to call you to function in relationship to someone else who is leading you. And it's absolutely crucial, just as it was crucial for the people of Israel, to understand what that paradigm is. How do we recognize it? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for our relationship with others? And this is where we are going this morning. So if you can, you're willing, able, I'm going to invite you to stand. And we're going to read Deuteronomy 17 together. Just seven verses, verses 14 through 20. Here now the reading of God's word. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Let's pray. Lord, we are in desperate need for men and women, boys and girls, teenagers, who have hearts set apart for you, who are ready to step into that place that you've called them to represent you, to lead others. Lord, we, we are in people in desperate need of knowing how to follow a leader. Lord, we're just, quite honestly, just not great followers. But Lord, this is the ordained divine order of things. But Lord, we want to just acknowledge fundamentally, though, that there is only one perfect leader. There is only one perfect king. And that's you, Jesus. And Lord, we want to be faithful to you. So lift yourself up high in this sermon. May this message not just be principles of leadership, but may this be a reflection of who you are as our great Lord, Savior, and King. And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. Just 
Two things I want to draw your attention to in the text. It's just, just two, right? Just two. It's the summer, after all. And so, number one, we're going to talk about kingship defined. So Moses is going to define kingship here for us, the parameters of it. And then two, we're going to look in a couple of other places in the Old Testament at kingship demonstrated to sort of get a model for what Moses is and is not talking about here. Let's look at kingship defined first. Now, the context for Deuteronomy 17, remember, this is Moses writing. Moses, who does not get to go to the promised land, that's a whole nother story, is telling Israel what they are to look for once they settle in the promised land. Here is what is to mark off the king and leader who will lead you. Now, look at verses 14 and 15. It's always been the case that God planned for his people to have a king. Now, I know if you're familiar with Old Testament, Israel has a complicated relationship with the kingship, okay? But I think from these verses, you can say it was always God's design for them to have a king. And the issue was not if there would be a king, but guess what? Who would be the king? How would the king be chosen? And here we get a vision of this very clearly God's priorities for who the leader is and is not to be. So let's start first with who the leader isn't to be or those things that aren't to mark the spiritual leader. Um, and, and there's three things that he says here in these first verses. He says, one, they're not to acquire excessive horses. So that rules most of you guys out except like Linda Ziegler, right? Not acquire horses. Not acquire wives, we're all in the clear here, wives, plural, okay? And to not acquire excessive riches. No one here is, is Bill Gates or Bill Soros, right? So we're George Soros, so we're, we're, all, we're all good. No, no, no. This is Moses' way of talking about the unholy trifecta, right, that has taken down many a leader. Money, sex, and power. Now, where do I get this from the text? Now, horses, he talks about this prohibition against acquiring too many horses. This is not because they, Moses was against racing or paramutual betting, although that's certainly, I'm sure, true. It was because horses in the ancient world were, in a very real way, symbols of power. But not just symbols, right? Because who rode on horses? Men, fighting men. And what did fighting men carry with them? Spears, right? And swords and such things. And so if you were a king and you had a ton of horses and you wanted to show king next door how powerful you were, you didn't have to show him the men. You didn't have to show him your armory. Just show him your horses, right? That, was, that communicated something very powerfully. Now, when it talks about wives here, it's obviously not just talking about polygamy, although that's certainly, I think, in view. But really, we're talking about the leader who has an unbridled restlessness as it relates to sexuality. One who, has, who is driven by lust and sensuality and sort of a discontentment with any particular monogamous relationship and is sort of always on the lookout always on the hunt, always wanting to keep their options open. And then, of course, riches, when it talks about excessive riches, remember in that day, there, there was no middle class, 
really, right? Um, today, middle class can live in, in, in relative comfort. But in that day, to live in relative comfort and ease and, and decadence required an excessive amount of riches. Now, what's interesting about all of these three things, guess what? They're all reciprocal, right? They all feed one another. And if you look at any modern-day scandal, okay, whether it's secular, like in the world, or if it's spiritual leaders in the church, these three things, isn't it interesting? Invariably, right, invariably, are all in there mixed together in some sort of combination. And we have to say, well, why, why is that, Pastor Paul? And I think Paul gives us a clue in Colossians 3.5. Listen to the way Paul describes sin, but particularly the sin of all sins. Now listen to this. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Here we go. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and last of all, in covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, Paul says here, several other places, the scriptures say it in multiple places, that idolatry is kind of like the big picture category of sin. And substitute, you know, um, idolatry is not just worshiping that little tiki idol that the Brady Bunch found on Hawaii in 1973, right? That's not what we're talking about. If you know, you know, right? And, and it's, it's, it's not talking about that. It's talking about taking anything of value and substituting it in the place of God and deriving more value and satisfaction from it than you do from God. It means finding your, your ultimate identity and value in something other than God. Well, here Paul reminds us that he lists covetousness last, I think, because he is pointing out something to us, right? That covetousness ultimately is the root of all idolatry, right? At the root of all idolatry, now listen to this, is an unholy discontentment. Now, I say unholy discontentment because there is such a thing as a holy discontentment, meaning you look at the state of your marriage or life or your health or your job or your parenting, and, you, and you're not content with that, meaning you think God wants you to grow. We think, you think God wants you to lead better. We think God wants you to, 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 to grow in character in these ways. There is, a, there is such a thing as a holy discontentment, right? This is not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about an unholy discontentment contentment. An unholy discontentment, which is not satisfied in the Lord, has been the root of ruined marriages, ruined churches, businesses, relationships, and I don't even have to continue the list because you know it. So, and, and, and so it's interesting here. Moses is saying, here's who the leader is not to be doesn't mean that you and I or your leaders may not struggle with certain pockets of this at different times and places, but what it means is that they're not given over to it. They're not seeking in it. They're not resting in it. Leaders, whatever capacity you're in, when you recognize these things in yourself, you don't go, that's okay. 
got a little something something going over here on the side or I've got this thing happening here or there's just a little pocket of sin that no one's going to know about it. The leader is fundamentally someone who looks at the state of their heart and when seeing this, repents and confesses and seeks change, which brings us to this second part of this, who Moses says this leader is to be. Now look at verse 18. It says, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life. Now, in the Old Testament, we know that a king in Israel was not just a king. The king was God's anointed. This was a theocracy, that the king was to be God's ruler enacting God's law on behalf of God's people. This was a covenant relationship, meaning not only were the people covenanted with God, but the, now listen, but the leader was covenanted with God to lead the people in a particular direction. It's interesting what Moses, uh, what Moses is describing here, and by the way, we, we, we see this, this happening in the coronation ceremony, for example, of Josiah in the Old Testament, but essentially what would happen at this coronation ceremony is that the Levitical priests would bring in the law. It was either the whole book of, of Torah or part of the book or Deuteronomy um, or, or different selections, and they would read it to the king. And the king would in turn read it back to them. And then just for good measure, kind of like an employee manual, except it's the Bible, he would keep this word literally by his side, by his throne, so that periodically they would call people in who would read the law, okay, in front of the king, in front of the court to remind them what we're doing. And by the way, this is the gen part of the genesis of all preaching and teaching. That's what we do here on a given Sunday. Now, when we think about this, there, there's obviously a couple of of levels we can think about it. It would, it would be very easy, and this is a good application, most certainly, to say the leader, the Christian leader, the spiritual leader, is someone who needs to wear the word of God around his or her neck. Absolutely. To be steeped in the scriptures, to know the scriptures, to be able to, to pour out the scriptures, to be able to personally meditate on them. But that's not the emphasis in this text. The emphasis in this text is not just on the personal allegiance to the word of God by the leader, but on the, the public demonstration in leadership of the word of God on behalf of that leader, even in a secular context. So let me, let me explain what, what, what this means. Guys, there is never a venue in which as a Christian you are not a leader. You cannot not lead, even by your passivity, even by your neglect. You can allow and permit and lead people into things. Your, your, your leadership, you're never not exercising your leadership. Please, please don't misunderstand. You, your leadership can never be neutral, right? You don't have the, the option as a covenanted 
believer before Jesus Christ of setting aside your Christian identity no matter what context you find yourself in. You don't, you're, you're not a Christian in here and a secular leader out there. You are a Christian, period. And you have to pray for wisdom and discernment to know, God, what does it mean to represent you in every phase and area of my life as a leader? Now, understand, that's going to look different in different contexts, of course. What that looks like as a public school teacher versus a youth pastor, of course, is going to be, look entirely different. Or a vocational pastor and a medical doctor. But here's the point. You're not a Christian leader unless, that, unless your Christian identity makes a claim on how you are leading. Now, and, and we can go a lot of different directions to this. Let me just give you one example. Um, I've gotten to know over this past season a young man in our church who was involved in a career change. And in his profession, he was being consistently asked or required to do things that violated his conscience. Things that weren't good for his soul. Things that he personally, while there might have been other people, maybe older, maybe more mature, maybe not, who could faithfully navigate that in, his, in their lives at that time and stage. But for him, he couldn't do it. And so he prayerfully stepped out of that profession, which was, by the way, very lucrative, which had a, which had a direct line from here to here, which would have been financially settling, because he realized for him in that context, it was going to be very, very difficult because of the nature of the job for him to represent Christ. Guys, that is a much wiser option than simply saying, giving yourself over to mammon and say, yeah, I, you know, Pastor Paul got to provide my family. Pastor Paul got to make a living. And before you know it, because I'm not saying these things are easy, by the way. That's why we have discipleship and one-on-one -on -one relationships and community groups and Bible studies to work these things out, man-o-man-o -oh -man -oh or woman-o-woman-o -oh -oh or whatever the case may be, right? Well, we are asking ourselves, does the lordship of Christ make a claim on your leadership and influence? That, that's, what, that's what Moses is wanting us to ask ourselves. He says, may it be true for you, may it be true for your leaders. Now look at verse 20. And Moses makes an interesting comment. He says, and so that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. Now what does that mean? Moses is saying, these instructions are designed so that the heart of a leader is not lifted above the heart of the people he ministers to, or the brothers and sisters he's ministered to. What, what does this mean? I think it's pretty straightforward. The leader is not to become elevated in pride in his or her standing. There, there never needs to reach a time where the leader does not locate himself or herself in what is going on. You may have heard the expression, um, uh, uh, I'll, 
I had heard the expression, but totally forgot it as I was about to utter it, right? Me and not for thee, or thee are not for me, right? These apply to you, but some people are more equal than others, right? Animal farm. So, so certain, certain exemptions sort of surround the holy man, right? Or the holy woman. And here, he reminds us, Moses says, God's chief concern, please hear this, for the leader is not how effective you are, although God brings fruit. God's chief concern for you as a leader, whatever context that is in, is your heart. Okay, it's astounding, and you've heard me say things like this before. Isn't it interesting what's not mentioned in the text here about leadership? There's no mention about skills, competency, gifting, none of that. Just straight character qualifications. We find the same thing in the qualifications for eldership, right? There is one, one and one only skill that is unique to spiritual leadership as an elder. That's the ability to teach, to instruct, to explain doctrine. That's part of what it means to be a pastor, to shepherd the people of God. Every other qualification, all of them, without exception, are character-driven. Not to say that competency, of course, is not important. Okay? There's other scripture passages, like, for example, in Leviticus, which we keep threatening to do a sermon series on at some point, right? Where, where God calls those who are skilled to weave the tapestry, right? You don't want the Four Oaks elders weaving the tapestry in the temple, okay? You just don't want us doing that. We're not skilled, right? The point is, though, competency, and boy, is this ever a lesson for the evangelical church. Competency can never substitute, dwarf, or throw shade over character. Guys, you can, you can fundamentally boil so much of the news of this leader or that leader or this denomination or that denomination, whether it's scandal or abuse, somewhere along the way, someone says, this person, this institution, this church is too big to fail. It's better to compromise or hide the compromise or shield this leader or shield this church for the sake of the kingdom of God. And Deuteronomy 17 squarely puts a peg right into the middle of that. It is godless. It's tempting in our pragmatic age, but it is godless. And church, the evangelical church at large is, we are, we are real ruinous. We are, we're gathering what we have sown. We are, we are eating the fruits of our labors when it comes to this. See, this is what happens, by the way, when complacency, skill, competency, skill, giftedness trumps character. There's no longer anything left to hold up the structure. Brian Croft says this, the longer I work with pastors and train leaders, the more I value humility and teachability over gifts and abilities. Before we leave this point, let me just, one little personal thing to you. You may say, Pastor Paul, I... I do, 
honestly, sincerely desire to want to lead as God wants me to lead. I think I have certain gifts. I think I have certain competencies. I think I have certain skills. What, 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 what would you have me do? There's several answers to that question, but the answer from this text, the very first thing to do is aspire to holiness, to grow in grace. If you want to be a leader, hoist God's word around your neck and just put your head down and pursue personal holiness in the quiet places with God. There, there's, there's, there's a lot of other things, a lot of other ways to answer this that would also be correct. But let me tell you, if we don't answer this, get this first answer correct, none of the others will follow. So that's kingship defined. Let's secondly look at kingship demonstrated. Now there are two, we're going to kind of go through this a little more quickly. There are two seminal moments in the life of ancient Israel as it relates to kingship. The first is when God gives Israel the king they deserve, and the second is when God gives Israel the king they don't deserve. And of course, I'm talking about Saul and David. Now, we're not going to turn to these specific texts. I'm just going to do, do a brief flyover and then draw some points back to Deuteronomy 17. 1 Samuel 8, Israel demands a king, and God is displeased because he tells them, you're not just rejecting Samuel's leadership, who was the judge at the time, you're actually rejecting me. That's what God says. Now, how does this jive with Deuteronomy 17? Well, God is not chastising them in 1 Samuel 8 because they wanted a king per se. He's chastising them because they wanted a king so that they could be like the other nations, so that they could look like the other nations. They could have the same status and the same power. They weren't interested in 1 Samuel 8 in having a king come and lead them into covenantal faithfulness before God. That was not their priority. So they wanted, so, so God gives them a king in accordance with the kind of king they requested. Now listen to this list. Now this sounds like a list of leadership qualities, right? 1 Samuel 9, 1 through 2. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zerur, son of Becherath, son of Ephiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. Now, on one hand, here we have all of the outward qualities and competencies that we would look for in any good leader. That, Dad, you would look for in anybody who would marry your daughter, right? Family lineage. He's got to be good-looking, young, tall, physically strong there. And there it's not just saying he's physically strong. It's an idea of he's mighty. He's, he'll kick your tail. That's what it really means, right? He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a warrior. He's an excellent fighter. He's decisive and strong and brave. But what, again, is the one thing that is not mentioned here? No mention of his heart. No mention of his relationship with God. And if you've read the story, you know Saul's kingship was an abject disaster. Consulted with witches, offered improper sacrifices, 
he was hunting down David, trying to unlawfully murder him. And so God gave Israel the king that they asked for. God gave them the king that they deserved. Sometimes, guys, part of God's grace is allowing us the fruit of our choices, right? So that we, sh- that we see very much our desperate need for him. Now, compare this to David when he is chosen by Samuel. Listen to 1 Samuel 16. This is talking about Samuel. And he, Samuel, consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him, is the oldest. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. A man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. I love this. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? He's like, well, there remains the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, and send him and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. And you know the rest of the story. Outwardly, you know, it does say in another part of this passage that David has a, had a ruddy appearance. This means he was kind of cute, right? He's kind of small. Remember, he puts that armor on of, of, that Saul gives him. It dwarfs him. He's young. He's inexperienced. He's the last, not just because he's the youngest. He's last because he's outdoing the most menial of labor, Right? taking care of the stock and the sheep, which was seen as an incredibly lowly sort of vocation. Yet, what is the one defining characteristic that the scriptures have over and over for David? He was a what? A man after God's own heart. Now, we know, if you know your Old Testament, that David was also a profoundly broken and sinful man was a murderer, was an adulterer, was a liar. And we have to say, well, how, Pastor, well, how does that jive with Saul being all those things and then David being all those things? And, and here is the sin qua non of biblical leadership, and it's simply this. When confronted with sin, godly leaders repent. The question is not, will leaders sin? Oh, yes, they will. You will. I will. Your elders will. But when godly leaders sin, when they are confronted as David was by Nathan, they repent. Remember, Saul had a worldly sorrow about losing his kingdom that led to death. David had a godly sorrow that led to his repentance. What does Psalm 51 say? Well, you know, Bathsheba was this and that, and it was a heart, you know, it was, a, it was, I was lonely, and, you know, I was, didn't sleep well that, no, no, against you and you only, God, have I sinned. In other words, I am the man. Now, I can't tell you how many times, and guys, this, this is, applies to not just leadership situations, but all instances of what I would call serious Christian sin. 
I can't tell you how many times complex, difficult leadership failures and personal failures would be infinitely less painful and hard if people just admitted they were wrong. If they simply repented. If they were simply humble and submitted themselves. There are so many pastoral care situations where if just one person would stop digging in their heels and say, I'm really messed up and I need some help. Because some of you got to know pretty well the podcast Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Church. And as grotesque as so much of that sin was, we never ever would have heard about it in that way if someone had just stepped forward, a key leader, to say, you're right, I am the man. Not the man in the good way. I'm the man in the, in the sinful way. And I want to submit my heart and change. Now, what we want to say here, as we're kind of drawing this to a close, and I'll, I'll kind, of, kind of push through this a little bit. It would be a mistake to draw merely moral lessons from this. So in other words, Saul was a bad leader, don't be like Saul. David was a great leader, be like David. Okay? That's, that's not the point of this. Because remember something. The king of Israel was not meant to terminate in not to be this ongoing succession of earthly kings. The king of Israel was meant to point to a greater king, an eternal king, a glorious king. You see, when Peter is, it's interesting, when Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2, he's, and he's telling them how Jesus, in fact, is that eternal king. He's the one that's coming from the line of David. He's the one that's the perfect king. He mentions them almost as an aside. Now, you can go still see David today, he's telling them. And where can they go see David? in his public tomb. And it's a reminder, please hear this, because some of us bear massive leadership scars. Either we've been burned in leadership, or more likely leaders have burned us, and this can be marriage, church, work, men, women, husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, pastors, community group leaders, all of us, right? Invariably, every one of those institutions are going to disappoint us. Churches, governments, states, politicians, presidents, candidates, all of them because they are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve are going to disappoint. And if, 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 if you're carrying something today that's just not allowing you okay, to engage the godly leadership that God has placed in your life, well, we just want to come alongside of you in that and mourn with you in that and lament with you in that, but also point out something. No human leader is ever going to be, be able to do what we want them to do. There's only one leader who can do that? 2 Samuel 7, we're going to close with this. 
This is the promise to David by Samuel or by God. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Now listen, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Who is, who is he pointing us to here? Guys, the scriptures make this abundantly clear. Revelation twenty two sixteen. 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angels to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Because one of the things that caused the Israelites to stumble and to reject their own Messiah. They were looking for Saul. They were also looking for David. Right? Remember, David established a pretty amazing kingdom, earthly kingdom in his time. But what they failed to realize, and we must realize too, is that before the, the news of this coming king, this coming pronouncement, can be good news for us, Jesus has to fix what's wrong in our hearts. Jesus has to come and, as the king, first be the suffering servant. See, we stumble at this point in leadership all the time. We stumble at the way of the cross. We stumble at the way of humility. We stumble, right, at the way of lowliness. And Jesus says, before I can be your king... I have to be your savior. Guys, there will be a day when, God, when Jesus is going to come, thank the Lord, and fix all of this mess. There will be no leadership issues in heaven. There, there will be no confusion. It will not be a democracy. It will be a glorious kingship where Jesus will fix everything that is wrong. The question is, have you entrusted yourself to him? The suffering servant, the king who first had to die for you, to make your heart clean as he made the heart of David clean. Do you know that king? That king is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.